Amen. All right. Uh, our opening reading is going to be Exodus 32. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 to 6. God's word says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed uh, to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, that is the calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, hear this, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the title for our sermon this morning is Meanwhile, right? Kind of like a film when you're watching a movie, uh, sometimes you'll have two storylines at play, and we have that in uh, the book of Exodus. So we've been with Moses up on, on the mountaintop, on, on Mount Sinai, but meanwhile, back down in the camp, there's all sorts of ruckus going on down there. There's, there's a bunch of things going on down at the camp. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that Moses has been meeting with God for over a month, receiving the law of God, instructions on the tabernacle, and the priestly garments. Again, just like a movie script, the scene shifts from the mountaintop to what's going on down below. And it brings us to our main idea for this morning. Our main idea, our guiding truth for this sermon is this. The inward sin of the heart will eventually manifest itself in outward action. The inward sin of the heart will eventually manifest itself in outward action. Oftentimes in the, in the New Testament, many of us are, are hopefully familiar with this passage. The golden calf passage is a very famous passage in the book of Exodus. And oftentimes the New Testament authors, so moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Testament authors would look back on this event as a teaching moment for the people of God. As an important lesson, Stephen, in the book of Acts, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And before he was martyred, he was before the Sanhedrin, that is the, the Jewish council, and he's using this story as an illustration to them. He notes in this instance that it's, that it's not only an indictment against his people, the Jews, but in essence an indictment against anyone not found in Jesus Christ. He says this in Acts 7.39, Our fathers reviews refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Where did the Jews just come from? Egypt, right? They've been, they've been released from slavery, okay? And what Stephen is, is he's, he's illustrating Egypt as that sinful desire that we have to go back to the place from which God has brought us out of and delivered us from. He has delivered us from Egypt, and yet when they felt distance from God, their hearts then longed to return to that place that God had delivered them, that God had freed them from. And herein lies, lies the human problem, uh, the sin problem. 
And that is this, that, that we refuse to obey God. Within our own strength, we, we, we refuse to obey God. The root cause is this, it's unbelief in God. And, and I want to explain it to you this way. It's, it's a belief in this, in, in what I would describe as a little G God. Okay? And what is a little G God? It's something that we set up to, to seem like God because it represents the things within us that we say God should be like this. Okay, we do that a lot in our lives. I read scripture and, and this God, he kind of offends me. So I think God should be this way. So I'm going to set this portion of scripture off to the side and say, I don't really think God was that way. Maybe the author misunderstood. And so we set up God to be what we think he is instead of trusting in the word of God to tell us who God is. You guys tracking? No. Okay, good. I'm just, this is a family talk this morning, okay? We can, we can kind of go back and forth. It's okay to amen a little bit. It's okay to interact. Loosen up. Everybody take a deep breath. Relax. Good. I don't want to be the only one talking. Chirp back at me every once in a while. No. All right. So, the root cause is unbelief in God or belief in a little g-god who largely models what we think is right or wrong. In our hearts, we thrust the Lord aside and we outwardly turn back to Egypt. You see, the sinful desires of our heart long to go back to those places that God has drawn us from. Egypt in Scripture is always symbolic of sin. It's always symbolic of being separated from God. Paul instructs also using this passage as an illustration to the Corinthian church. Uh, if you know the history of the Corinthian church, they are what I would describe as a messy church. Okay, we can learn a lot from the Corinthian church because they were a messy church. They were messed up. They had a lot of problems, but God still loved them. And God sent Paul to instruct them and guide them. And Paul uses this as an illustration. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 to 7. Now these things took place as examples for us. Did you hear that? These things, he's talking about this instance in chapter 32. These things took place as an example for us, the church, that we might not desire evil as they did. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. Okay, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Does that sound familiar? It's the end of verse 6 that we just read. And then he says this, now these things happen to them as an example. Okay, so we have this as an example, but they were written down for what? Our instruction. And so in that vein, in that light that, that Paul is bringing uh, to us, that light that he's shedding on this instance, we church, we want to ask that, that question. What is the instruction that the Lord has for us in chapter 32? And so we see this in this passage, point number one. We see distrust and demand. Among the people of God, we see distrust and demand. Now, a few quick reminders. Maybe you're joining us for the first time, or you just kind of forgot where we've been in the storyline of Exodus. Moses and, and the Israelites have been at Mount Sinai. Uh, back in chapter 19, we're in 32, so 19 was a few weeks ago. Moses uh, made a number of ascents. He climbed the mountain to be with God. And, he, and we have this picture of him kind of going up the mountain and coming back down to the people. And going up to the mountain and coming back down to the people and communicating uh, with them. So he made a number of ascents up to meet with God at the top 
of the mountain in chapter 19 and 24, uh, receiving the instruction of the Lord, Moses and the Israelites ratified a covenant with God, so an agreement with God, saying this, all that the Lord is saying, they said this, we will do. They agreed to what the Lord had told them to do, his instruction. They've received at this moment in time, not in physical form, but they've received the commandments, the Ten Commandments of God, the law of God, audibly. They heard it spoken. So they've heard the commands of God, and they have heard these two specific commands that I want you to remember. They said uh, they have received these two commands. Command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And then number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Did you hear those two commands? Do we see some conflicts kind of brewing in chapter 32 in light of those two commands? Now at this point, so back into the story, at this point in time, Moses has been up on the mountain, we believe, 40 days. That's what Scripture says. He's been up there 40 days uh, with God. Scripture tells us before this that he had at this time brought Joshua with him, kind of left Joshua halfway up the mountain. Moses continued up to the top of the mountain. And then the rest of Israel, the congregation in a sense, is at the base of the mountain. And they have Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, with them there at the base of the mountain. And so in light of that, let's read now verse 1 from chapter 32. It says this, uh, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, up, do you hear this demanding voice? Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, I believe the original language here is kind of voicing in a way of contempt for Moses or almost like a mocking tone. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. We don't know where he's at. Where's this dude at? He's gone. He's gone missing. The Israelites have distance from their, their mediator, their, their go-between, Moses. And that distance has created distrust in the camp. And it's not Moses' fault. I don't want to imply that anyway. Moses is truly having a mountaintop experience with Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God, the Lord. And yet his people have grown weary of waiting, and they proceed to take matters into their own hands. You see, I want you to hear this. Faith is what? Is trusting in the Lord for our every need. And in this scene, okay, the opposite of faith is taking place. They are distrusting of the Lord. They're distrusting of God's mediator, Moses. And that distrust has grown in the hearts of God's people. And in that distrust of God, they make a startling demand of their priest, Aaron. I mean, this passage should be absolutely shocking within the journey that we've had through Exodus. They've seen the powerful displays of God. They've seen the might of God. And yet here they're questioning God and the distance that they feel that they have from him. And so we have a lesson here, an application. You see, church Egypt is in a sense still lurking in their hearts. That draw back to the old way of life is calling to them. They have seen, felt, and heard the mighty power of God. And yet Egyptian, and in a sense worldly influence, is creeping around within them. 
doubt and distrust loom. And they respond not by slaying this sinful influence, but rather indulging in it. They hand their hearts over to this darkness within them. Demanding of Aaron a violation of the very covenant that they agreed to a month or so earlier. What was that covenant? You shall, have, you shall not have any gods before me. To which they responded, what? All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They have, just like you enter into a mortgage contract and you sign your name, it seems like 567 times, you enter into a covenant saying, you're going to make payment on the house. We used to be able to ratify those with a handshake, right? You shake a hand, my word's good for it. Now we do it with a signature. It's just, they're, they're doing the same thing. All the words that the Lord has spoken, they say, we will do. We agree. But what did they do? They broke the covenant with God, didn't they? And this is the result. Point number two. We see compromise and decline. We see compromise and decline. Let's look at verses two to six. So Aaron said to them, so Aaron's now responding to their demand. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold. Time out right there. Okay, let me ask this question. Where did the gold come from? Do you guys remember? It came from Egypt. Oh, man, you guys are talking now. This is good. It came from Egypt, okay? And who impressed upon the Egyptians to hand their stuff over to the Israelites as they were leaving? God. Interesting. So Aaron asked them, take off the rings of gold, which God had given them, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it, hear this, with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. Okay? Pause there for a second. Why a golden calf? The bull or the calf was, was a symbol within this region of, that, that people venerated. And it actually harkens back to their time in Egypt. That would have been a point of veneration for the, the Egyptian people. They worshipped the bull or the calf. So they're going back to where they came from within their heart. And then it says this. Man, this next part should just absolutely shock us. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What a thing to say. Then it says this, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, before the calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I want you to note that the Lord here is capitalized. You guys notice, notice that? Whenever Lord is capitalized in the Old Testament, it's the personal name of God. Okay, it stands for Yahweh. We're going to circle back around to this in just a second. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Again, notice two word choices in this passage. After Aaron succumbs to their demands... I want to add this, he easily succumbs to their demands, doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't really offer much resistance. They came to him, he said, okay, I'll do what you want. And he himself, it says, fashions the idol for them. 
the people respond to the idol with these words, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they're saying these are your gods in a, in a plural form, little g, gods. Okay, And Aaron almost adds a point of correction to them. Okay, Notice how this unfolds. When Aaron saw this, this is where we're drawing this point of compromise. When Aaron saw this, he adjusts things a little bit. It says he built an altar before the calf or the, or the golden bull and proclaimed, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord. And again, anytime Lord is capitalized in the English Bible, it stands for the name of God, Yahweh. Here, Aaron, I believe, has compromised with the sinful action of his people. The people have full-on given their hearts back to Egypt, but Aaron is saying, hey, can we, can we meet in the middle a little bit? Maybe we built an altar to this idol, and this idol represents the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. You see where the compromising is starting to creep in to the people of God. He makes an altar to Yahweh in front of the idol. And so the people have violated the first commandment, haven't they? You shall have no other gods before me. And yet Aaron in his compromise violates now the second commandment. Okay, we should never make an image that we worship instead of God. That's what Aaron is calling them to do. To worship an image. People of God have violated the first commandment and they violated the second commandment. Two compromises that violate the very law of God, and I want us to draw this point of application, this this compromise, this moving the goalpost just a little bit. Hear this: God will not accept half-hearted devotion. He won't accept half of it. It's why it's why Jesus says, "You must die to yourself and follow me," because He's not just going to take half of you. He wants everything that you have. That is the cost to follow Jesus Christ. And church, we can't soft sell this point because there are people, you're going to say, well, Keith, you're getting a little dramatic here. There are people that are dying and they're going to hell because we soft sell this. That you can kind of just put your foot in the water a little bit. Jesus wants every single bit of you. He said, take up your cross. Take up your electric chair. Die to yourself and follow me. That's what Jesus calls followers of Christ to do. You don't get to ride the fence one way or the other. Die to self, follow Christ. God will not accept half-hearted devotion. And from this compromise, so we have a compromise here, Then moral decline ensues. It says in in verse 6, And the people sat down to eat and drink. This is important because whenever they've made an agreement with God, what have they done? They ate and drank with Him, didn't they? They had a meal. Meals are so important in, in the family of God. 
It's fellowship. They've had fellowship with God. Here, they're having fellowship with their idol. And then it says this. It says that they, they played, right? The exact words are, rose up to play. That's an interesting phrase. Because that, that word is used quite a bit in the Old Testament, and at times, okay, it can have this connotation of dancing, but oftentimes it has more of a sensual connotation to it, a sexual connotation to it. And so we see that, that this word to rose up and play is a word that has a, a sensual or sexual connotation to it. Some scholars believe there was more than a, than a party just going, they weren't just dancing and drinking down there. There was all sorts of stuff going on. You know what I mean? You guys tracking? It was a, a, a full-blown sex field rave going on down at the base of the mountain. Later in, in verse 17, when, when Moses is coming back down, Joshua will tell Moses that he says this, there was the sound of war in the camp. And then he says this, but not of victory or defeat, but of singing. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Joshua says there's a sound of war and the sound of singing. I mean, you can see the tension, and Joshua knows there is something wrong going down there at the base of the mountain. And he's warning his mentor, his leader, Moses. There's, those people are up to no good, Moses. I want you to note this also. Because church, we have the tendency to read passages like this, and we never reflect on ourselves as, as the body of Christ. We quickly think outside the walls of the church, okay? This instruction is written to us. We cannot expect people who are in unbelief, who, who aren't following Christ, to heed the wisdom of Scripture because they don't have God's Holy Spirit within them instructing them. This instruction is for us. And so oftentimes we'll take a passage like this and we'll walk outside and we'll start pointing fingers and say, hey, why don't you get in line? Whereas this instruction is for who? For the church. And so first, when we read a passage like this, we have to look within the four walls of the church and say, God, what are you saying to us? Instead of us pointing a finger of judgment to the world who does not know Christ, we have to reflect on ourselves and say, God, what are you telling us? We have to reflect on ourselves first, which is difficult, isn't it? To hold a mirror up to yourself. We have to look within our walls for compromise and decline. And I think we, we struggle with that self-reflection on sinful compromise. We can quickly notice the moral decline of everybody else, can't you? You ever find yourself sitting in a sermon and say, I wish so-and-so was here listening to this. But hear this, God's talking to you. God's talking to me. You see, I get beat up by this stuff all week long. You guys just got to sit through it for like 40 minutes or so. God's talking to all of us. Don't disregard your own shortcomings by going out and pointing the finger at everybody else. Call on the Spirit of God to transform you from the inside out. It's why 
At this church, we examine ourselves weekly when we receive communion. That's not something that we take lightly. We have to take time around that meal and reflect and search our heart and say, God, where do I need to be transformed? Where do I need to reconcile with relationships that I've broken? God, what do I need to do differently in my life? Not thinking about what your neighbor should do or the person up the street or that guy you work with. God, what do I need to do? What do I need to transform? We should be asking these questions. Do I have unrepentant sin in my heart? Am I living a life of faith? Of a life? Am I living a life of faith in Christ's work? Am I applying gospel grace to those around me? Do I give sacrificial forgiveness to those who have wronged me? Did you hear that? Do I give sacrificial forgiveness to those who have wronged me? Am I seeking the word of God for correction? Am I at unity with the fellowship of believers? Am I at unity with the people that make up this local expression of the body of Christ? Point number three, we see prayer and response. We see prayer in response. Exodus 32, we're going to go uh, verses 7 to 14, and then I'll summarize the remainder of the chapter. It says this, and, the, and so pause for a second here. So we have what's going, down, going on down at the, at the base of the mountain. Now the scene kind of shifts back up to the mountaintop. So we're going to see where Moses is at in all of this. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Moses, go down For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You notice how God knows exactly what's going on down there? And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Hear this. This is Moses' response. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from from this disaster against your people. Then Moses reminds them of a promise. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. The scene quickly shifts back to the mountaintop. God warns Moses that his people have given themselves over to the desires of their heart. They have in their heart fled back to the bondage of Egypt. God's anger here burns. Burns against his people. And he appears here in this passage determined to destroy these people. His wrath, it says, burns hot against them. And Moses, notice, he responds by crying out to the Lord. He, in a sense, is praying to God. Praying that God may spare his people 
and uphold his great name, God's great name, and also his promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, this is beautiful, God then responds to Moses' plea for help. God responds to the prayer of his people. Church, I want you to hear this. Prayer changes things. Okay? I spent hours and hours studying this because in, in my mind, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big God guy. Like God's sovereign. God knows exactly what's going on. God's in control. God's angry here. He's going to pour out his wrath. Moses prays, and it seems that he changes God's mind. Did you notice that? Here's the bottom line. I don't know how all that works. I know this. God desires to hear the prayers of his people and respond. I've read 15 different ways that scholars chop this passage up and try to explain it. It's a divine mystery. God seemed to be heading one direction, and Moses intervened, and God redirected. I don't know how that works. I don't want to try to explain it to you because I don't understand. I know this truth. God wants to hear from his people, and he wants to respond to his people. And that's the application that we have to walk away from here. Pray to God. God wants to hear from you. God wants to respond to his people. Now quickly summarizing the remainder of the chapter, Moses returns to the camp. Joshua then, we mentioned this earlier, intercepts him on the way down, letting him know that a great sound has been coming from below. As Moses approached the camp, now we see there's an, there's an interesting change here. God is angry up on the mountain. Moses is praying and, and intercedes and mediates. Now as Moses approaches the camp, if, if you've read the passage beforehand or you know the passage, what does he do when he gets down there and he sees what's going on? What is he carrying? He's carrying the tablets, right? The Ten Commandments that have been written, as Scripture says, by the finger of God. And what does Moses do when he sees the scene? He slams them down on the ground, right? We've all seen the movie, haven't we? Okay, he slams them down on the ground and what happens? They break into pieces, Moses has an anger burning within him. A, I have concluded a righteous anger. There are times when it's okay and good, in a sense, to be angry. Okay? Someone messes with a child, I'm going to be angry, right? We should be angry about those things. Someone treats a woman in an incorrect fashion and takes advantage of her, There should be some righteous anger burning. Are you guys tracking? We see Moses come in on this scene, and there's all sorts of wrongdoing going on. And and Moses responds in righteous anger, breaking the tablets. He throws down the tablets, breaking them, for the Israelites are, I think we see this visually, they're undeserving of God's law. They've broken their covenant with him. And then he does this. This is crazy. He pulverizes the idol. He grinds it up into powder, puts it in the water, and he says, all right, 
You guys drink up your idol. Isn't that crazy? Totally destroyed that idol. He then questions his brother Aaron. Let's read 22 to 24. It says, And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Do you see the blame shifting already going on here? For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of, of him. So I said to them, let any, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I just threw it in the fire, and this calf came out, right? Is that, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Classic blame shifting. Kind of reminds us of an instance back in the Garden of Eden. You recall what happened there? When Adam and Eve fell and, and get, God came searching for them, what was, what was Adam's response? Hey, the woman made me do it. The homeboy didn't protect his garden at all, did he? And he threw her under the bus. Not cool. Classic blame shifting. Moses then in the story calls those to him who are on, it says, the Lord's side. And it's at this point that, that justice is executed. Those who are no longer, he calls to them, those who are no longer willing to follow Yahweh are put to death as they continue on in their crazed behavior. Even as Moses pleaded on behalf of his people before God, he had to do something about the behavior. Correction occurred, and we can conclude that that righteous anger burned within Moses. The behavior, he could not let it continue. It needed to be controlled and corrected You see, church, you can't allow sin to continue in the camp. Now, here's the thing. We don't go Old Testament on each other anymore. We're not handling that with the sword. But we we do it through gentle rebuke and love and kindness of pointing people back to God's sword, which is his word. You can't allow sin to continue in the camp unchecked and expect that God will honor that type of behavior. We have to root those things out. Again, in gentleness and love. And so we have a warning. Here's a warning that we have. Two more things. Do not exchange your eternal position because of your emotional position. Do not exchange your eternal position because of your emotional position. Church, guard your heart. Okay, guard your heart. I think we can draw from this. There's, there's something emotionally going on in the, in the people of God. They're, they're distant from Moses. They're distant from their mediator. For some reason, uh, this powerful God who made them fear and tremble just a few chapters ago, they're, they're forgetting everything that he's done, and now they're, they're going back to their old ways. Why? Because they felt something. They felt that something had changed. They let their emotional position endanger their eternal position. You see, again, our main point, inward sin will eventually manifest itself in an outward display. We're seeing the things that have gone on in their heart now come to light, come out into into the light. Oftentimes, discouragement and dismay can fill our hearts when we are uncertain of God's plan or feel, right, emotional, we, we feel emotions aren't bad, but sometimes they hurt us, they endanger us. 
We can feel distant from God. But do not forsake your position in Christ. Hold fast to the Lord. Don't forsake Jesus because of the emotional position that you feel at a given time. Remember this promise. promise. In Christ you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I am certain of this, that God does not fail. When he fills you, he is, he is faithful to the end. You will persevere in the faith by the power of God. And he gives us this promise. He calls us children of God in 1 John 3, 1-3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called what? The children of God. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And then John says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Do you see that tension? We are God's children now, but do you feel the tension? I'm asking you a question. Do you feel the tension in your heart where sin's rubbing up against that Holy Spirit within you. And you're like, man, God, I'm just struggling right now. I feel distant from you. It says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Because the consummation, of the finality of everything comes upon the return of Jesus. He says this, but we know that when He, that is Jesus, He's talking about, appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, notice it says, what, what will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. And so, church, there's going to be a tension in this present time that at times you are going to feel distant from God and you continue by the power of His Spirit to hold fast to Him. And God holds fast to you because He's faithful to complete the work that He has begun. John then says this in, in 1 John five twenty one very simply, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. And so chapter 32 concludes as we capture a glimpse of Jesus. It's our gospel connection this morning. Jesus is this. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. The last five verses of Exodus 32, 30 to 35. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and Hear this, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make, what, atonement for your sin, covering for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Moses offers himself here. Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. God is going to hold fast to his promise, he's saying here. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague to the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron 
had made. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We have one final key truth that comes to light in this passage is the truth of, of the atonement, of the covering of our sin. Moses goes to God attempting, we have a picture here, attempting to make atonement for the sin of the people to cover for them. To cover the sin of Israel. But notice that God rejects his request. Why does he reject Moses' request? Because Moses is sinful. Because only a perfect, spotless sacrifice is able to atone for sins, is able to cover sins, is able to turn God's wrath to God's delight. And these, these last few verses point to one who came to do that. The one who came later in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This points to the gospel. 1 John 2, 1-2 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then hear this, But if anyone does sin, who here is a sinner in the room? I am. John says this, We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that title. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then he says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. Church, at the sound of that, those two verses, there should be a collective sigh of relief that that hushes over the room. Everybody, thank you, Lord. Joy should overwhelm our hearts. There's some truth there. You have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who propitiated our sin. Now, you're hearing this word propitiation is a rich theological word. It pictures this. See, atonement pictures covering. So we have this idea of clothing. So we're, when, we, when our sin is atoned for, we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And the propitiation gives us, gives us this picture. It gives us this picture that not only the wrath of God being satisfied, so the wrath of God was satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus, but with that satisfaction of his wrath, the favor of God is turned towards his people, those who have faith in Jesus. That's good news. In Christ, church, God is for you. That's what propitiation means, that God is for you. We sing a song, and and at the end it, it repeats this line, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. We need to hear that truth. Because sometimes we think about our lives and we, we think about the way that we fall short. John says, but if anyone does sin, and we say, how, how could God be for me? He is for you because Jesus is the propitiation for sin. He has turned God's wrath into God's favor towards you. That's what you have through Jesus I quote John Murray by way of J.I. Packer. He says this, 
The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ so to deal with the wrath that the, love, that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath and love, hear this, would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. That's what we have when we're standing in Jesus, that we are children of God's good pleasure. And so, Christian, we, we conclude with this. Hold fast to Jesus. Guard your heart from the allure of the worldly pleasures that entice. Guard your heart from the snares that previously gripped your heart before you were in Jesus. Pray as Moses prayed. Hear this, pray as Moses prayed on behalf of the saints. Pray as Moses prayed on behalf of the church, on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Pray that God would hold fast to our hearts and that the joy of being found in Jesus would overwhelm us. That when we gather together, there would be this overwhelming sense of joy that God's favor is resting upon every person in this room that it would bring us into a song of praise. Pray that our immediate emotional pain and position and distance would not overwhelm us and drive us from the loving arms of Christ, but that he would sustain us, that he would guard our wandering hearts, as the great hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That Jesus would guard us. Let us not wander from our Lord, our Savior, our mediator.